Hello and welcome to another OU Law School podcast. In this episode, I will be talking with Hugh McFall, who is a newly minted senior lecturer here at the law school. He recently gave an interesting talk on his work with Open Justice and clinical legal education at a distance. He and his colleagues at Open Justice have done some amazing things, and we talked about it and the research coming out of that project. On that note, the law school is celebrating the 50 years of the Open University starting in September. We're sorry for the delay, but we wanted to make it right rather than quick. So thank you for your patience. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, hello, we're talking here with uh, Hugh McFall, who's a senior lecturer, newly minted, uh, here at the Open University Law School. We're going to talk today about um, legal clinic, clinical legal education and how to do that um, at a distance, uh, which is DOU's uh, way of doing things. So first of all, Hugh, can you, um, can you introduce yourself and tell us something about you? Hi, great to be here, Marion. Thanks for asking me. Uh, my name's Hugh McFall. I'm a, a lecturer in the law school and- Senior lecturer. Senior lecturer, that's right. Take a bit of getting used to. <laughs> and I've worked in the law school for about four or five years. And over the last uh, two and a half years, I've been working on, a, on the Open Justice Centre, which as you say, is the Open University's clinical legal education project. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Because when, I used to do clinical legal education back, way back. Um, it was all about uh, meeting people f- through your local university network. But uh, as you know, at DOU, it, it, we're not local. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a good good point. Yeah, and it ma- makes it really interesting uh, challenge for, for for us to deliver this kind of work in the way that the Open University operates at a distance. So I suppose it's really it's important to go back to basics and understand what clinical legal education aims to be. And I suppose you need to understand how it developed. And the word clinical, I suppose, is a bit of an odd one in the context of legal education. So clinical is taken from the uh, method of uh, medical education, which mm-hmm. uh, relies on um, trainee doctors uh, having experience of working with patients. So the word clinical comes from the Greek klinikos, mean, meaning at the bedside. So the idea is, is that learning is done on the job, as it were. So it, it's in, in that um, way that we use the term clinical legal education to describe experiential learning. So uh, learning about the law by getting engaged with legal professional uh, jobs. So whether that's giving advice or researching the law or giving uh, legal education seminars. So um, whenever a student um, has the opportunity to get involved in practical legal activities, we can call that clinical. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're right. Doing this in a distance learning context is unusual. And I think it's fair to say that the Open University are doing some pioneering work here in the Open Justice Centre in bringing uh, the principles of clinical legal education to distance learning students, especially at the scale in which we operate. Because as you know, we're the largest uh, law school in Europe. We've got over 6,000 students. And to um, provide these um, opportunities for students in this context isn't easy. So we've had to think quite carefully and strategically how we roll this out. But essentially what we've done is try to mix it up. Um, Mm -hmm. We've created some bespoke projects And also we've um, followed the lead of our uh, colleagues at other universities in providing what we call externship opportunities where we work with external partners for students to get involved. 
So would it help if I gave a, gave a flavour of some of the projects that we sure. offer? Yeah. So um, in terms of the, the, the projects that we've developed ourselves with our students in mind, so we're talking about students who've got lots on in their personal lives, uh, domestic responsibilities, em employment, um, looking after children, perhaps some physical disabilities that mean they can't travel to certain places. We've developed some online uh, clinical activities where uh, we've uh, allowed students to connect with members of the public to provide a legal service in an online environment. So th the first thing we, we developed was the Open Justice Law Clinic, which allows students to uh, meet members of the public in an online space, uh, to interview them about their legal problem, and then the students can go away and uh, provide a letter of legal advice to that client after it being checked by um, a colleague who uh, and colleagues who are uh, qualified solicitors. So we're able to essentially offer fully insured legal advice as you would get from a solicitor's firm, a letter of advice to members of the public without them actually physically being in the same mm -hmm. room together. So that's quite exciting and quite innovative. So that's one example of our bespoke projects. The other ones we're, we're um, developing is we've, we've developed a, a an online mediation uh, project which provides students the opportunity to develop skills in mediation in an online environment and again that's fully accessible to open university students and also we're, we're experimenting with other areas of technology including um, asking students to use their legal knowledge to develop smartphone apps so you know the, the apps you download from the App Store or Google Play and put on your phone we've started to play around with um, getting students to put important bits of legal information in a very usable setting onto a smartphone app that would be useful for members of the public. So we've piloted one on the subject of employment law and we're talking to some of our external partners in the charity sector to develop other uh, types of app that would help their, their clients. So there are a few examples of the kind of technology things that we do. In terms of externships, our students work uh, in civil courts uh, throughout England and Wales in the personal support unit where they provide support to litigants in person. So that's a, you know, a, 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 an opportunity that happens physically in the real world. Mm -hmm. Also, um, our students work for the Citizens' Advice uh, as well, um, pr providing advice to uh, members of the public and also in the witness support service where if, uh, a witness, if someone's a, a witness in a criminal case, some of our students will be supporting people through that process. So that's some of the externship stuff we do. And then we've also developed other real-world projects uh, for our own students using our own uh, links and, and expertise within the university. So we've developed a project with the St Giles Trust, uh, which where our students go into prisons throughout England, Wales, and soon hopefully in Scotland as well, whereby students work with um, peer mentors who are based in prison to um, provide legal education seminars in prisons or produce uh, um, radio programs to be broadcast on prison radio within that setting. And then on top of that, we've, we've run um, a lot of uh, school-based presentations as well, where uh, st our students will go into schools to talk about legal issues that will be of interest to school students. So we've done things on knife crime, the law on consent um, and sexual offences. We've done stuff on human rights and Brexit, so a whole range of things. So I suppose what we've tried to do is, is build a portfolio of projects that allow students to get involved in their communities, you know, and we're a, a, a university that spreads throughout the United mm -hmm. Kingdom and some of our students, as you know, come from uh, further afield than that. And we've tried to build uh, projects that um, 
will be uh, all of which will be accessible to at least uh, some of which will be accessible to all our students so whether you're uh, studying in prison or you're studying um, with limited mobility or you've got domestic responsibilities we we've tried to provide opportunities that all you know at least one or two of them you'll be able mm -hmm. to get involved in some people have managed to get involved in more of them um, but that's the approach we've taken yes yeah, so it's been a difficult thing to do to provide clinical legal education in distance learning but we've tried to be creative and think about our students a particular situation so we build projects that that work for them so that's been the the aim all right so obviously this has been um sort of churning in your mind for quite a while so can you tell me what first got you interested into it and um what research underpins this well my the reason why i got in, interested in it was there was a um t the university took a decision that the law school was in a place where it could sustain this kind of investment in a new project. So basically me and a couple of colleagues put our hands up and volunteered to, to lead the project. Um, and we um, were given this really good opportunity. I've always been interested in education. I've always been interested in trying to be um, uh, innovative in the way um, we, we engage with our students. And I felt for quite a long time that we could do more in offering students practical experiences to supplement their theoretical uh, and abstract legal uh, studies that uh, we're very good at providing in elsewhere in the module. So this was really an exciting opportunity to do something different mm -hmm. and also to move the, um, the, the practice of clinical legal education on a step by embracing technology and thinking creatively about how we could accommodate students. And, you know, w once again, thinking about the Open University's motto of being open to people, places, methods and ideas. And really, what we've been trying to do is use that, that attitude, that, 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 that framework and applying that to clinical legal education. So based on this experience, you know, I've become interested in some of the, the principles behind what we're doing and I've started to do academic research around the kind of technology that we're building to use this uh, to, to, to facilitate the clinical legal education and also to think about the way uh, the discourse of clinical legal education is, is, is presented. So, so I've done some research on two areas really. One is how technology can enhance learning. So I, I just had a paper uh, published this week um, which did some analysis of a virtual reality uh, application that we built. So we, we built a virtual reality classroom where students could mm -hmm. um, practice delivering presentations and that was a, an optional part of their, their module. So to support them in going out into the uh, public to give presentations, we built uh, a virtual reality uh, software provided with students with the headsets and they had the opportunity to go and practice their presentations in a virtual reality environment so quite an exciting thing to be involved in and uh, I did some research over about 12 months talking to students about how they interacted with the software and um, I, I published some research using um, a realist evaluation methodology which is a, 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 a an evaluation methodology that's used quite widely within the social sciences and it uh, seeks to offer a granular analysis of um, social interventions. So if a, uh, the government introduced a particular policy or um, a local authority um, try and support um, the development of, say, for example, getting people more involved in fitness activities, mm -hmm. they can use this methodology to analyse how successful the intervention has been in changing or influencing behaviour. So essentially, I, I thought that this was a good methodology to use for this particular research because what we were doing is, is in a way, providing a social intervention to allow students 
to use a um, bit of technology that they wouldn't otherwise have been introduced to and to see you know what uh, outcome would come from that so I anticipated that the outcome would be that students would use the virtual reality application would practice with it and that they would become more confident in their presentation skills and deliver better presentations so that was my theory my program mm -hmm. theory and then I, I looked at the context in which students used the virtual reality app I looked at how they reacted to using the the app what kind of responses they had whether it was completely ignoring it partially using it or engaging with it and then I looked at what outcomes actually happened for those students. And so through that, I built up a very detailed picture of how uh, students responded to that app. And I was able to make some conclusions uh, uh, to advise other people who are engaging in uh, using virtual reality in their teaching about what kind of things to look out for to make sure that their use of it was a success. So it's been a really interesting project. So that's the technology one. Mm -hmm. um, and then... Can I, can I ask you just a question about the technology one? Um, usually people assume that um, younger people are more yeah. technology savvy. Yeah. Did, was there any, any age issue um, in how no. students engage with the app or yeah. with the technology? That's really interesting. I think um, y um, there were some of the students who were, who were younger did seem to, um, you know, weren't phased about using the new technology. But likewise, some of the old, older students were, were of that mindset as well. I think it's more about a mindset, really, mm -hmm. than, than uh, an age thing. My research um, didn't find a correlation between age and ability or willingness to use the app. I think what was more um, significant, really, is people's willingness to engage in giving the time to, to assimilate into this new mm -hmm. technology. So I think it was more about motivations and how much time the students had available and how much value they felt that practicing their presentations in this virtual space would add. So some students said things to me like, you know, well, I do a lot of presentations for my work anyway. And I didn't, I didn't really need to feel the need right. to uh, use this space to, to practice it. Other students said, well, I tried using the app, but um, I found that the headset was a, a little bit uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So there seemed to be certain barriers really around uh, motivation in terms of the amount of time people had available to, to use the app. And the, 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 the thing that uh, I concluded from it was that because we didn't make use of the app compulsory for any assessment purposes, students only, we, you know, it was, it was an additional opportunity mm -hmm. for students to practice, which I think is it's good for the Open University to provide these opportunities uh, to do an additional bit of practice to help people build people's confidence but not everybody felt the need to do it and because they weren't forced to use it in the sense that right. you can force students to do anything <laughs> but you know they didn't have the incentive of being attached to an assessment uh, outcome then you know students just prioritize other things and it was interesting as well that in the cohort of students I did um, the research with that they were often um, studying at a full-time rate. Now, mm -hmm. as you know, in the Open University, the majority of our students study part-time, which means 60 credits per academic year. But a lot of these students, um, more than normal, uh, over half of them were studying at a full-time rate. So really, they were very pushed for time. So I think, you know, uh, if I was to do the research again this year, I'd, I'd guess that the, 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 you know, the picture would be slightly different. But the, the, the principles of the difficulties, the challenges and the values that students um, uh, expressed to me in doing the research, I think, would, would still um, uh, apply. Yeah, to still transfer. And that's what makes this methodology, I think, quite useful when you're using new technologies 
um, and this is a fairly rapidly changing field. You can pick out kind of the golden thread of, you know, what was it about that particular situation and about that particular technology that fired well and worked, mm-hmm. and what was it that misfired? And then I think from that you can at least take certain things from that that are worth testing again. You know. Yeah. So, so it's not a, a switch on or off failure and yes. success. It's, yeah, it's granular. That's granular. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. it's very much more. Um, you know, we we tend to think in binary terms whether uh, a policy has been a success or not. Yes or no. Whereas this methodology, I think it's a bit more, one, one author uses a phrase, it's a bit more, rather than it firing like a, uh, either works, like going off like a firework or not, mm-hmm. it's more like a dimmer switch, so on, a, on an electric light. So sometimes, you know, you, you know, there's a capacity for it to go all the way up to 100, yep. or, you know, it might have worked up to 75%. So I think it, it allows you to unpick the threads of success and failure or uh, of impact within within the, 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 the whole tangled web of reactions and responses to and to the uh, technology. I think this methodology also allows you to, to contr- not control for context, but to tease out the context. Exactly. That's, um, what, that's right. And you can't control for context when you're doing real-world social yeah. research as you do in education settings. You can't you know, put one, one set of people... I mean, there'll be ethical issues, wouldn't there? In, yes. If we wanted to... Experimenting on yeah, students. Yeah, if I, if I said to, 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 to the ethics committee at the university, I wanted to only allow half the students access to this app, mm-hmm. you know, that, that would cause problems because we're meant to be open to everybody and people say, well, why, why can't I get access to it? So we wanted to make it open to everybody and that's, the, that's exactly right, yeah. The, this methodology allows you to uh, understand and control for context in a way that you can't do in a lab, you know, in, in the real world, but in the way that you can do in a laboratory, say. Yeah. Um, and it allows you to isolate that and to try and say, well, what elements of the context were relevant in, the, in, this, in this particular instance? So, yeah, so it's been, that, I find that very interesting and very enlightening. And it really, um, I, I find it, you know, it was challenging to get, get your head around this methodology because it, it's not really used um, in... Um, legal education and it's not it's not being used for legal tech really that that much at all it's most this methodology has been mostly applied to uh, health education so people training to be nurses and doctors and so mm-hmm. on so um, basically what I was doing was transplanting a methodology that had developed I think you know within a clinical properly clinical uh, setting, setting yeah. you know and applying it to clinical legal education so I thought the logic was was sound and the the results have been interesting so um, yeah, read it. Go to my profile page. You'll see Hugh McFall <laughs> at the Open University, and you'll see uh, the a realist evaluation of student use of a virtual reality application. So it's uh, it's good. So there's lots of pictures of the virtual reality app that you can look at, and uh, it, you know you'll see how we use the methodology, and uh, it'd be interesting to hear any any thoughts. And you can email me very easily by getting in touch. Uh, open justice at open ac.uk open-justice at open.ac.uk yeah get in touch let's let's have a chat um it, all of this will be in the show notes uh, in the link so yeah go there and click it's a one click away um there's um another thing that i um that you were when so usually what happens is we have research seminars and you gave a talk uh recently and it was about the fact that the, the clinical legal education field is under theorized um, in the sense that it's very experiential, it's very uh, done through doing things, mm. um, but we still don't work through uh, through a theory, yeah. basically. Um, so can you tell us something more about the project that you're starting for that? Yeah, thanks. So um, the 
project that I'm working on with a colleague from the University of Bristol is to um, bring together a number of academics working in clinical legal education around the world uh, who are interested in taking um, uh, a theoretical approach to their teaching practice and their work in clinical legal education. So the argument that we're making is that clinical legal education is by its nature about practical activities um, and therefore the emphasis has been on developing good quality practical activities for students to use in different settings and, and, and sharing ideas around what works and what doesn't and how certain projects can get off the ground and so on. But what is uh, interesting is that many, it's quite often the case that people who work in clinical legal education for obvious reasons have had a practice background. It's very mm -hmm. common that they might have been practicing lawyers um, before they've gone into education or they might carry on doing both. Sometimes they work part-time as lawyers and help out at universities doing these practical activities, running advice clinics um, and so on. So what that means is, is that sometimes the way the discourse around clinical legal education is, is approached is to focus on the practical side of it, um, uh, partly because often the people engaged in it don't ha have come at it from a practice perspective mm -hmm. and aren't used to engaging in um, the uh, theoretical explorations uh, that you would expect in other areas of uh, academic life. So there's partly, you know, it's not part of people's experience. And also there's a sense in which I think that uh, clinical legal education is, its focus on practice, I think, kind of eclipses the attention to abstract ideas or theoretical ideas and I think what's happening now is that as clinical legal education is kind of more accepted and used more wide in a more widespread way across the globe it's more and more common for clinical people involved in clinical legal education to have dual roles so they'll run clinical education programs but they'll also be involved in teaching jurisprudence or they'll be involved in teaching ethics or criminal law or mm -hmm. something like that as well and so there's, there's this cross fertilization and so what we're trying to do in the book is invite uh, colleagues to um, write about their clinical practice in, in a distinct way, which is firstly to uh, articulate clearly the context in which they're working, a bit, little bit about their jurisdiction, the type of clinical legal education they're involved in. Secondly, to articulate very clearly a theory or a, or a couple of theories that they think would be useful for um, gaining an insight or analysing their uh, clinical practice. And then thirdly, to articulate um, the new insights that that application of theory brings. So, um, for example, we've got a range of uh, participants from all over the world. Some people are using um, the work of the philosopher uh, Immanuel Kant uh, um, to, to, to see how his approach to ethics could illuminate approaches to clinical legal education. Other people are using sociologists such as Bourdieu to, to, to look at the um, power relations within knowledge and the delivery of clinical legal education. Other people are taking feminist perspectives. Other people are taking anthropological uh, perspectives. Other people are using political philosophers such as John Rawls. Um, I'm using um, the work of Martha Nussbaum, who's a, a, a philosopher and, and lawyer, a legal philosopher as well. Um, in, in uh, using the capability approach as a way uh, of uh, engaging with clinical legal education. So the principle is, is that, you know, there are a lot of really useful, what I would call thinking tools or theories or approaches that are available to us in related disciplines such as uh, education or social sciences or psychology, 
uh, or philosophy, and that um, it would be interesting and uh, fruitful to apply some of these principles to the work that goes on in universities using experiential uh, method, methods that we, we approach in the Open Justice Centre. And I think it has benefits, I think um, two or three really important benefits. Firstly, for students, using these approaches um, would enrich the way that uh, students are able to be assessed because quite often in clinical legal education practice, students are assessed via reflection. So they'll mm -hmm. be engaged in these practical activities, then they'll go away and uh, write about how you know that's had an impact on them, they'll reflect on them. And I think if you're able to open the door to students using some theoretical perspectives to bring to that reflection, I think it will make for a more substantive um, and interesting um, experience for mm -hmm. the students and also experience for the person reading their work if they're able to make these connections to the, the wider academy. Um, and also, I think what, what it does is it allows what's going on in clinical legal education to have greater links with what's going on outside it. So it, it makes uh, clinical legal education fit um, more easily into the academic framework. And so students can, therefore, when they're engaged in clinical legal education, more easily make connections between the more abstract stuff that they might have been doing elsewhere in the modules mm -hmm. and what on the practical work they're doing. So the two things feed off each other. So hopefully they'll find that their abstract work is more interesting because of the practical experiences they've had and that they're able to make a bridge between the two things more easily and they're also more readily available, more readily able to bring the theoretical perspective to their own experiences. Yeah, so to summarise, what the book's trying to do is introduce different theoretical perspectives to the practice of clinical legal education and the idea is, is that's going to enrich uh, practice, reinvigorate what people do and also have a... a a positive impact on students so it's quite exciting to think that we're doing something a little bit different and trying to introduce these these different perspectives we're not quite sure what we're going to end up with mm -hmm. but you know that's that's the fun of research you don't know exactly where you're going to end up when you start if you know then don't start the research exactly the whole idea is <laughs> what happens in the middle yeah yeah so we usually end up this podcast by me asking uh my uh co-host co-conspirator, conspirator, um, problems that you face or they faced in their research and how they've overcome and some tips and tricks that they've learned during this road of researchdom? That's a really good, good question. And I think um, I would say a, a few things. I'd say first off, uh, be, be resilient, mm -hmm. you know, and d don't get put off um, that... Uh, you know, you've got an idea and then you start to look into the literature and you feel somebody else has got there before you because what, what you'll find is is that when you look into it a little bit deeper, even though somebody else has written on something that you'd quite like to write about, once you start engaging in the topic, there's lots of different angles that can, you know, you can use their work to uh, develop different insights and different approaches. So don't be, don't despair if you've got a really good idea and then you start to do your, your literature research to find that other people have also started on that approach. In a way, it can be quite good because you've got material to work with and avenues to develop. So that's the first thing I'd say. Um, secondly, um, it's important, I think, to um, talk to your colleagues and your peer group and anybody you can really about what you're doing. Because I think when you try and explain your research to other people, your ideas to other people mm -hmm. the very act of explaining it helps to clarify it in your own mind and also people will give you insights and ideas it's always the case that when you try and explain your ideas to somebody else 
if you do it you know in a half decent way that they can you know you, you make your ideas accessible then the other insights that you'll get from your colleagues and other people are really invaluable and give you other other ideas to to explore um, and the other thing I would say is pace yourself and um, I was given some advice about when you're doing uh, writing um, that uh, you should stay away from email as much as you can <laughs> do to begin with so if you've if you've set aside a writing day don't do any any emails or social media or any distractive technologies until you've done at least two hours of writing so mm -hmm. get some good stuff done uh, in the morning uh, and so you you uh, really feel that you're making progress and I think that's how the momentum begins to build because there's nothing worse than you know being under pressure and looking at a blank page have, not having started so if you discipline just you know start writing anything just to get your thoughts down on paper and once that the wheels start to turn everything becomes uh, a, a lot more straightforward the consequence of that is don't be afraid of the red pen or yeah. deleting and editing yeah things. exactly that's very much part that's the fun part of the process where you've got some material to work with and yeah it's definitely an iterative process don't feel that you can you know write good quality research just by sitting down and writing it off in one go you have to um, really go through a lot of processes get to the point where you're happy enough to show it that you can show it to somebody and then expect to get feedback and pointers and uh, ideas for development that's a, a process that goes through every stage then you go up to submit it to a journal it, get, it gets peer-reviewed and then you have to tweak it again yeah. and again and, and it's important to build a thick skin as well um, and not be disheartened that you know one of your you know the, your, the journal that you want to publish in won't take your piece at this point there's always somewhere you can publish it and it's about you know developing um a an ability to take criticism in in in, in a constructive um manner in which it's usually meant which is to try and improve something and remember you know you you're not on your own you're it's a collective endeavor research because in any context even if you're writing a paper on your own you're you're benefiting from the work of other scholars who've developed the field and uh you know to get the input of people who are editors for, for journals and reviewers for journals is, is a real uh, benefit to your to your writing and your approaches so um, yeah thick skin perseverance um, but don't you know tr try not to distract yourself as I've done in the past with too much emailing or catching up on the news websites and so on it's if you just start and uh, um, you know get the momentum going so it's a it's a uh, it can be frustrating but it is a it's a great uh, enterprise and you know if you've got time to engage in research it's a wonderful privilege really um yeah, there's a there's a guy who talks about uh, something called deep work which is basically uh, this thing you switch yourself off for three to four hours um you literally switch off the router in your house um and you sit and sit and write yeah. doesn't matter whether you've finished a thousand words or 500 words in that time you've done some deep thinking and yeah. you've written something. Um, and that, as you said, builds up. Um, it was different for me when I was doing my PhD about 12 years ago. Uh, distraction wasn't so readily available. Yeah. You don't have, Facebook was, ba was barely a thing. Um, social media wasn't on your phone. I had a very dumb phone back then. <laughs> um, you know, um, you can just switch off basically from checking emails and yeah. that's it and it's you and the, and the computer and the ton of mountain of books and papers around you that was that was back then it sounds good to me yeah but it's, you've got no. to try and work hard to recreate that but i yeah. think that discipline i like that idea about deep thought 
deep, deep work, deep work. Yeah. yeah, deep thoughts. The computer, isn't it? But uh, um, I would say that's that's really helpful uh, to, to me. That kind of a, approach, because I think that it, you know it isn't easy sitting down and just just concentrating on something and trying to work something through. But you know, writing things down, whether it's on a computer or pen and paper, just to get your ideas going, can be really good. And and I think you have to have faith in yourself as well. Is that sometimes. It's that when you when you're researching an area, it's that balance about at what point do I start writing? You know that nervousness. That mm-hmm. There's papers out there that you should have discovered and you haven't come across and so on. <laughs> but um, I think you just need to start. You know, you just it's better I think to start writing sooner rather than later, and then you can always go back to, to discover more, 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 more things. You know. So at the end of the day, if there's a paper you haven't read that it's very important, the peer reviews will hopefully catch it. Yeah. Um, and they'll tell you, okay, in their comments, read more, more something from this or this person yeah. and incorporate it into your work. Um, or the people who, before you submit the peer review, the people you share it with, okay, have you looked at uh, yeah. work of this and this person? So, so that's why sharing your things before you actually submit them and before they get published, it's important. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That's what I also found. Yeah. Because I was very afraid of the red pen uh back yeah. in the day yeah and it's and you know i i agree with that and, and i think you you have to see it as a process and uh an iterative process and you you know you do have to keep refining what you're, you're doing to really get a good good quality product out there because once it's published it's there you want it to be as good yeah. as it can be. <laughs> um all right well Hugh, thank you very much for yeah, this i've talk. really enjoyed it yeah yeah um and good luck thanks Thank you very much for listening to this podcast and I hope you will come back for the next podcast about the law school's research. As ever, you can find out more about us on the law school's website. Check out the show notes below as well. Don't forget about our celebration of the OU's 50th birthday starting in September. The music in the background is called Dirty Mac by Endless Love. Take care and hope to see you again.